Well, welcome to the Convene Studio. We're here with Al Arisman, and we're excited to talk about a book he's written called The Service Master Story. It examines how the first five leaders of Service Master managed to develop and give deeper purpose to their employees while also growing a financially successful organization. Service Master went from a few people making a living for themselves in Chicago to a $6 billion enterprise star of the service industry, according to Forbes magazine, in 40 countries with five different CEOs. Each leader built on the uh, work of the previous leader, we like to say in Service Master, like shingles on a roof, and we focused on helping workers develop as people. I can say we because I was there for 20 years as one of the leaders. The book that Al's written, The Service Master Story, explores how these leaders collaborated and complemented each other. So let's take a peek behind the curtains of Service Master. Al, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And Al, uh, you have led for, I think, 30 years, if I remember correctly, the R&D group at the Boeing Company. You Correct. Business and technology at Seattle Pacific. You're part of the Theology of Work Project, or some people know it as the TOW project, and are you currently the co-chair of the board still? I am. Great. Co-founded Ethics Magazine and author of a number of other books. For those of you who don't know about Convene, we're a comprehensive leadership organization that helps uh, people run their business on a biblically, biblically sound basis. You can find out more about us at convenenow.com. So Al, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, I was it a three-year journey to write the book? That's correct. <laughs> Gosh, I, did you guess at the beginning it would be three years? I had no idea. Uh, I told Bill that I was very grateful at the end that I had done this project, but I would probably never have taken it on if I'd known what it was. There you go. There you go. And uh, you got to find out some of the secrets of Service Master success, I imagine. I looked in every corner I could, uh, read books, read annual reports, speeches, interviews, people all over the world. It was a, it was a real detective story. <laughs> and I, I remember our lunch in Seattle at the pier. Yes. Where you uh, asked me questions for a long time and hopefully I was able to be a little bit helpful. You were, it was, it was terrific. It was great to hear from real people who were there rather than just reading the books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I introduced Bill Pollard, the uh, president that you refer to in the book. I introduced him one time at an event, and he kind of got up and said, oh, my gosh, that made me tear up. And I, I looked at him and said, well, you've made me cry a few times, too. <laughs> <laughs> For different reasons, like not right. being on budget. So what did you find to be some of the secrets of Service Master success? I think that there were many, um, but I would start with this idea that there is purpose and meaning in all of work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the uh, Harvard professor, uh, Heskett, made the comment that Service Master had cracked the code on the service industry because service industry was characterized by 500% turnover. I mean, people would come in, they'd get a job, they'd find a better job, or they'd quit. Service Master helped people see that what they were doing had value. And it changed the nature of the workers, and therefore it changed the nature of the work. 
And uh, so I think that was central. Uh, another thing that was central was a, a profound commitment to ethics and values. And the idea of holding those together was a very important part of the story. The idea of servant leadership. The leader is not the king, but the leader is there to serve. It's a very hard uh, thing to do. And yet uh, the leaders uh, tried to do this. I've studied the literature on servant leadership and I found that what happened with Service Master was different than what the leadership talks about. Most of the leadership talks about all the aspects of serving as a leader, but they don't include the fact that the leader himself or herself is broken. And if that's the case, then a servant leader must ask forgiveness. And this characterized uh, a kind of servant leadership that recognized that neither the leader nor the follower were perfect. And only a system that recognizes reality can really work. Wow. Uh, another thing that I found that was profound to me was walking a very thin line between driving profitable performance and valuing people. Hence the title of the, uh, the subtitle of the book, uh, which is here, is Navigating Tension Between People and Profit. Yeah, um, very important. Yeah, and, and Ken Hansen, the second CEO, I, I loved his illustration of this. He said, it's like stretching an exercise band as you hold on to two different values that are in tension helping people develop and growing profitably. He said, the tighter you stretch this, the more creativity it can drive in finding a solution that will do both. But he said, one thing you learn is that you better not let go of either end or it will hit you in the face. <laughs> and so this idea of holding on to the tension of these two things was, was essential to what Service Master did. Yeah, and I, I remember Ken doing that talk many times and he would stretch out his arms <laughs> and he had the bow tie on. Yeah. And here's this uh, smallish man with a perfectly coiffed hair and a little bow tie and a white button down shirt holding this thing out here saying, you can't let either end let go or it'll snap and hit you in the face. Right. Just like you talked about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a powerful thing. And what I've been most excited about in the book is the history is interesting. Uh, the people were interesting. The way they worked together was really important. Uh, but I think that they provide some examples for businesses today. And I, uh, I'm hopeful that people won't look at this as a history lesson but more as a, uh, uh, an MBA class where they say, how can I apply some of this to a 21st century business? And mm -hmm. I believe that they have got the keys and the, the nuance to these keys uh, that is so important. If I could just give one more example. Yeah. I remember Bill Pollard talking to me about this and he said, uh, people had written about the company and they said, when you treat people right and do all these things, look at the profits and the growth of revenue of this company. 
what a key to growing a profitable company. And he would say, no, you do these things because they're the right thing to do. And the results follow often. But he said, don't think about manipulating people to create profit because the people will see through you. You've got to do it because it's right. And so it wasn't just the practices, but it was the way they thought about the practices that was so essential. Yeah, um, I still have a mug uh, from our Service Master days that says the story will be told in the changed lives of people. And I love the vision statement uh, that we had as well to be a vehicle. The company is to be a vehicle for use by God in the lives of people as they serve and contribute to others, right? Not right. be a vehicle for use by God in the lives of people as you, you know, try to secure bounding profits. Uh, but that the work that people do uh, creates dignity and value and respect in them. And uh, people who are, let's say, unemployed for whatever reason for long periods of time, no, no fault of their own or fault of their own, uh, we're robbing them of the ability to have dignity and value and respect from God. So, yeah, I, I think, um, I think that lesson was so important. And <clears throat> one of the things that I learned about each of the leaders is that they took time to actually do the work of the people. Bill yeah. Pollard told me about when he was hired as executive vice president, his first six weeks at Service Master were on the mop at a hospital. And yeah. he said, uh, two things happened to me in uh, doing that work. One is that it, it, um, I began to, to realize how hard that work was and it made me, made me more appreciative of the people in the organization. But the second thing I realized is that often service people are treated as invisible. You walk right past them as though they're a part of the furniture. And he said, living with the invisibility uh, changed me as a leader as I recognized how I needed to value these people. And so I think some very real examples of ways to help this kind of leadership develop was absolutely essential. Yeah, it's a great point. Bill and I started the same month, I think, and he was down on his hands and knees in Chicago while I was down on my hands and knees in California. Yeah. And, uh, I found another thing, two, two things to be true. One was people kind of uh, made jokes to you as they walked by you, Cer certain people, not everybody. But if you're down scrubbing baseboards or scrubbing a wall or whatever, certain people would come by and say, hey, 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 you missed a spot. <laughs> it's really funny when you're not on your hands and knees, but when you're on your hands and knees with your you know, fingers cracking from the chemical and somebody says, hey, hey, hey you missed a spot, you kind of want to rise up, grab them by the shirt and say, don't you know that I'm a college graduate? Right? Yeah. You don't, and you realize, yes, a lot of times, like Bill said, service workers are invisible, but a lot of times uh, they're kind of jeered at. So um, that 
taught me that it's actually uh what do i want to say that it's it's actually good to be down on your hands and knees working cleaning something it creates a servant's heart in you yeah bill told the story about um when he was on the mop and a a relative of his wife's uh, was coming down the corridor and she saw him and she looked at him and she came up to him and she said, aren't you Bill Pollard? And he said, well, yes, I am. And she said, "Uh, didn't you used to be a lawyer? And he said, "Uh, well, I have a new job now. And she looked at him and she said, is everything all right at home? (laughs) It was as though there was something broken about being a part of this. And I think uh, Jim Heskett was right, uh, this Harvard professor, when he said they'd crack the code. Because I think if you uh, engage people in their work to see real value, it will change uh, the nature of the work and change them. And that's really what they were about. Exactly, exactly. Well, um, your research took you to all of the Service Master Presidents up to a certain point in time. Marion Wade, the founder, a former baseball player, Ken Hansen, a pastor, Ken Wessner, Bill Pollard, and Carlos Cantu, who was running Terminex. Uh, What did you learn that would be some leadership lessons for us today as we are in this pandemic in 2020, worldwide? Yeah. I think, um, you know, it started with Marion Wade, a person with an eighth grade education. Um, I think uh, one of the most amazing things that happened uh, was that uh, Marion was a researcher (laughs) with an eighth grade education. He invented a new way of doing moth proofing, which was the early work of Service Master. He actually found his way into a lab at Northwestern University and worked out this for several months to create this new product. The new product required some heating, and in one of the instances in 1944, it exploded in his face. And the thought was that he might be blinded, and he said it was his Damascus Road experience. And coming out of this, he said, Lord, you can do whatever you want with my life. And he felt God telling him not to become a missionary or become a pastor, but to turn his business in a different way. He said, I'd, always, I'd been a Christian, and I had been a Christian in my personal life, but I never thought about applying that to business. And so I think Marion Wade is the genius that kind of had the idea that I can think about my business in a completely different way. And he said, I want my success to be measured by not the usual means, but a testimony to the work of God long after I'm gone. He said this way back in 1944, and it changed the nature of the way the company was built. Now, he wasn't much of a business guy, uh, it turns out, Um, but Ken Hansen came along, and he saw something in Ken, a former pastor, and recruited him very hard to join the company. Ken had no obvious credentials in (laughs) finance, but Marion saw something in him, and so he said to Ken, I want you to make sure that you pay the workers as well as you can. When you get done, pay yourself, and if there's anything left over, pay me. 
<laughs> and, and Ken uh, really had some wonderful insight in terms of financial things. He actually developed a, a dashboard based on a telephone and a slide rule where he could get key numbers and display how the company was doing uh, very early on. Uh, so he added this business uh, acumen. He's the one that took the company public. Um, once the company had gone public, I think he realized that he didn't have all the credentials he needed to run a publicly traded company. So he went to University of Chicago and got an MBA, uh, working part-time, uh, working full-time and going to school part-time. Uh, they recruited uh, Ken Wessner. Ken was a process guy and he became fascinated by this idea of carefully building process in the way you do your work to be effective and to, to deliver value. And the three of them had this practice that they recognized different gifts in each other. So Marion was the chairman of the board, Ken Hansen was the CEO, and Ken Westner was running a major part of this, but the three worked together and they did call it shingles on a roof. And Ken Hansen used to say, well, Marion Wade is a master sales guy. He can stand up and really wow people. So I'll let him do the presentations, but he's horrible at closing, so I'll close. <laughs> and <clears throat> so they used each other in this way. And when, <clears throat> when they recruited Bill uh, Pollard, Marion had died, but Bill and Ken, and Ken worked closely together and the shingles on a roof continued. So I think that that way of doing things was incredible. And then Bill came along and he said, every service person would benefit from this kind of thing. Are there some <clears throat> other services we could reach out to and grow the company to continue to provide opportunity for development of people, but to grow the company? And he took on this idea of acquisitions. Ken Hansen had tried acquisitions early and they had failed. Uh, but Bill said, the key to an acquisition is the right kind of orientation. And so he became the professor and he spent a lot of his time simply talking about the four objectives that Service Master held to and how those worked and brought in uh, lawn care, pest control, other kinds of things. And then along came uh, with Terminex came Carlos Cantu. And Carlos mm -hmm. recognized the need for valuing diversity. Uh, he himself being uh, Hispanic, his parents had come from, from Mexico. And so he uh, brought in a diversity element. And so each one added something to what the previous one had done. Each one built on the foundation of what the other did. Each one continued to value that foundation and um, it's an amazing time from 1929 till 2001 as they build on each other and as they honored the past, recognizing the change in the world and the need to adapt and make some changes. And uh, that growth was a byproduct. Mm, yeah, great. I love the story of Bill uh, Pollard uh, being interviewed by people when he was being considered for a role 
And uh, in the interview process, he asked, I'm, I'm not totally sure who was there, if it was Westner and Hansen or Chuck Stair and Westner, but whatever. Senior leaders were interviewing Bill, who was uh, being considered to come on board. Right. <laughs> and he asked what his title would be. And uh, they abruptly got up and ended the interview. And a little bit later, they called Bill and said, would you like to know why we abruptly ended the interview? And he said, well, yes, I would. And they were like, meet me for breakfast at such and such a time. So they met and they said, it's because you asked what your title would be. We are here to do whatever is needed to serve each other kind of thing. I don't know exactly what was said, but it was to serve each other and to serve the enterprise and to serve our people, not to worry about a title. Yeah, um, so. Bill told me that uh, Ken Hansen said to him, if you're here for a title, we don't want you. But if you're here to serve, there will be a wonderful opportunity for you. What do you want to do? <laughs> there you go. In typical uh, Ken Hansen fashion. Yeah. yeah. Very. Title, we don't want you. All right. <laughs> See, the, the, the fact that Bill was very direct and Ken was very direct is something that kind of spilled over to a lot of us. So I can be very direct today. And it came from really being mentored by these guys. Right. And it was in that context that both of them recognized uh, that sometimes in being direct, they've missed a point and they needed to apologize. Yeah. And uh, Ken Hansen wrote a, a wonderful little piece uh, in a little booklet he wrote called Reality, where he talked about a painting that he had done that had some black in it, representing the brokenness of every leader. And I have not seen much leadership training that focuses on the brokenness of the leader, but Ken Hansen really believed this deeply and talked about it. And so I heard many a story of each one of these leaders needing to say to a person, I was wrong, you were right, and yeah. I apologize. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a, a good trait for any leader. Well, uh, let's take a little detour. You're not a theologian, I'm not a theologian, but we're gonna talk about this Soul of the Firm book for a second that Bill Pollard wrote and he espoused the fact that a firm might have a soul. Now, for all of the theologians who wanna write us and be critical, uh, Al or I are not espousing the fact that a corporate entity can have a soul, but it's an, it's an idea, it's a concept. Uh, what did you learn as you, wrote, as you wrote the book about this notion of a firm having a soul? Yeah, I think uh, maybe a modern term for that would be a, a firm has a culture. And the culture has a particularly important role in, um, in recognizing that we don't do things this way here. This is what's expected. And uh, the culture was driven by their four objectives, to honor God in all we do, to help people develop, to pursue excellence, and to grow profitably. And interestingly, the leaders sought to in, uh, embed that in everyone that came. So I did these 70 interviews, and I don't think there was a one that I did where the person in the first few minutes didn't say to me, 
do you know about our four objectives? Let me tell you about them. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of companies have objectives, but they may, might hang on a wall or they might be in a desk drawer. But these were a very real part of who they were. So I would say that a culture that a, the soul of the firm was really the way uh, the what was expected, and everyone understood this, and it was a part of it. So it's a little bit deeper, I think, than just the sum of the souls of the individuals, because I think it was when you walked into that office, you knew that these were the things that were expected of you, and. I think this was the biggest challenge that Bill Pollard faced when they started doing acquisitions, is how do you bring in someone, some company that has a culture different from yours and embed and make sure they understand that this is what is expected. Some of the early things after, one of the, the big acquisition in 86 was Terminex. And I remember one of the people I talked with said, we would come back from those meetings shaking our heads saying, what is all this philosophy stuff? Let's just get on with making money. But Bill was relentless in pounding this in. And Carlos Cantu, uh, as the leader, is the one that really got this. And he continued this as well. I think in some cases, it was harder to deeply penetrate some of the acquired companies. Uh, but I think it was happening over time. And I think that that is what represents the soul, is this deeply understood culture that this is what is expected of us. And this is the way we are to perform and act. Is that, does that square with the way you uh, experienced it? Oh, totally. Yeah, I was uh, in meetings with Terminex people who would use a few choice swear words and say, I'm not putting those blankety blank objectives on my wall. And yet I was talking to our vice president for people, uh, whose name is escaping me right now, but anyway, the VP for people who would be running around the country doing training sessions on our value set. Right. And uh, I mean, you don't, it's not helpful to say to somebody, you certainly will put our objectives on your wall, our objectives on your wall but you would want to say to them, well, let's talk about why we think our values are um, um, worth talking about. Along with the 20, I don't know if it's 21 or 27 leadership principles of Service Master uh, that would be dialogued about uh, with all these Terminex uh, people. But once a Terminex person, you know, begins to understand that as they're spraying the lawn to make it greener and have less weeds, or once a Mary Maid's uh, lady sees the franchise owner helping her clean the house, uh, or once a hospital employee realizes we care about them having a great mop, they realize that the value set is actually not just a series of words on a wall to help people develop, but because we believe that people are created in the image of God, therefore people have value, therefore we should treat people with dignity and value respect, it begins to actually mean something and it begins to actually not be a plaque on the wall, but it's worked out in shoe leather. Yes, and, and I, out of that are created stories that are told again and again 
which help other people get it, not just as a, a ritual, but as a life. Yes. So one of the, one of my favorite stories was when Bill was in uh, in London, and uh, they had their business meetings. They were part of the services for the National Health Service in London, and at the end of the meeting, he said, I want to meet some of the real people that are doing the work. And so they went down on the floor and he was introduced as the chairman of Service Master. And this woman dropped her mop. She came over to him. She put her arms around him and she said, you have changed my life since you took over the housekeeping services here at National Health Center. She said, um, I used to just put in my time and now I'm helping the patient get well. I'm an integral part of this health services and you have changed my life. I think, I think it's stories like that that make it very clear, not just to the leaders, but to the people doing the work, that they understand what their role is, how that works, and why it's so important. Totally. Well, let's uh, flash forward to the last, uh, whatever we want to call it, the last decade, Service Master was the most significant service organization of their day on the front cover of business magazines, uh, studied at Harvard, but today it's not functioning on the same value set. And if you logged on to the website, it would not say to honor God in all we do. What happened and what can we learn from history? Uh, let me back up just a second. When Bill and I were talking about this, I had an agreement that uh, he couldn't pay me because I didn't want it to be biased toward him. I wanted to write it uh, as, a, as something that I really believed in. Secondly, he needed to open his network. And thirdly, I had editorial control. And so this is my book and not his. And we had that agreement. But he said, you really shouldn't say anything about what happened after 2001 because it isn't a pretty picture. And I said, look, if I'm going to write this with integrity, everyone wants to know what's happened. And I need to do that. Uh, writing that chapter post 2001 was the hardest part of the book. I tried to be very fair, but what happened is that Carlos took ill. Bill had to step back in. Uh, ultimately, Carlos uh, died quite young uh, with cancer, and Bill stepped in on an interim basis in 1999 and 2000, and the board decided to get someone from outside to come in. Uh, as nearly as I can tell from everything I've read, Jonathan Ward was a very capable uh, leader, but the ownership and the deep understanding of these four objectives was not a part of it. Early on, uh, he made a very clear statement to the investors that we are really number one, all about shareholder value. And it was that statement that made it very clear that it just wasn't gonna be the same. Uh, they sold off the major part of the company that was dealing with uh, uh, housekeeping at hospitals and industry, and uh, the goal was to make a lot of money. They struggled throughout his tenure, and he was ultimately terminated in 2006, and the company was taken into, uh, uh, taken private. It was owned by a private equity firm. 
Yeah, and we should just note for people who are not familiar that when Jonathan sold the healthcare piece, doing biomedical equipment, materials management, patient transportation, food service, that that was 50% of the company's value. Uh, three, four billion dollars was taken off the, rev the top line revenue. Yeah, and he did that because he saw that the profit margins for that part of the business were slowing. But while Bill was running this after Carlos had taken ill, Bill had a meeting with Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett said to him, you know, profit is measured by how rapidly the stream is, is flowing. And he said, if the stream is flowing slower, you will get less profit, accept that. And Bill did. And so as a result, they recognized that this was not the uh, big profit engine, but that was not Jonathan Ward's objective. And um, so after he was terminated and it went private, um, then uh, in 2013, Rob Gillette uh, took over the company and took it public again. He is the first one. There were about four uh, CEOs over that period, 2001 to 13. Uh, Rob reached back to Bill. And he said, Bill, you guys had tremendous success. What did you do? And Bill went through the four objectives. And Rob said, I don't know that I can do that exactly. And furthermore, I've got a board that's pressing me for short-term profits. And I just don't think I can pull that off. And he was fired in 2017 because they weren't growing rapidly enough. Another person came in, he was fired, another person came in, and just two weeks ago, uh, the company was split, and Terminex is all that's left now of the old Service Master company, and the Service Master brands, all the ones that were left, Mary Maid, Furniture Medic, uh, and uh, the uh, franchises, all the franchises, Service Master Clean, uh, Restore, uh, they were sold to a private equity firm, and that happened just a couple weeks ago. So um, I think what I learned from this, I, I'm a scientist by training. <laughs> and when I think about doing an experiment, I say, if you can change one variable and look at the results, you can learn a lot about the impact of that variable. And as nearly as I can see in studying this very carefully, the variable that was changed was to move from profit is a means goal and our primary goal is helping people develop and honoring God with our business. And when you shift that to profit is our objective and you have the same businesses otherwise, everything changed. And so I have to say that as painful as it was to watch this happen, uh, it actually is the point that proves the point of how important it was to hold on to these four objectives. And one of the interesting things after this, I went and visited uh, several franchises and a couple of them were holding on because they were franchises. They weren't supported by corporate anymore, but they were holding on to the four objectives and they were doing really well. And then I found people like you, Greg, and that was the exciting thing about the interview, that had learned something from Service Master and are carrying this on in other places. And so I say, 
the service master vision, even though it isn't present in service master like it was, uh, is being carried on in different places in the world. I even found a leader in Saudi Arabia that used to run the Saudi Arabia portion of Service Master. He told me excitedly that he now has four companies, three companies that he's running in Saudi Arabia. And he said, you know, we have four objectives in each of these companies. You want to know what they are? To honor God in all we do, to help people develop, to pursue excellence, and to grow profitably. That's great. That's great. <laughs> and so I think, uh, I think the concept lives on. It's impacting a lot of people today. And maybe someday there will be a revival at Service Master as the private equity firm disposes of this in some way that would rekindle this. Because I think it really changed the service industry. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the service industry is regarded as low-cost labor. And if you help people develop and engage people in purpose and meaning, Bill used to say, when the cause of the firm and the cause of the people in the firm are aligned, look out because you'll have incredible performance. Yeah, yeah. I think it could be said uh, the story of Service Master, as you um, alluded to, is being told by hundreds of leaders who carry those principles in their mind and heart and soul and are promoting them in whatever they do. One of those leaders is Andy Beal, who's a new convene uh, chair in Phoenix, Arizona, and he is going to influence hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue in the businesses that he helps to be their best, to build their business on a biblical platform, to do great business, to look people in the eyes and say, if you don't have profit, you don't have a company to honor God. And yet to say, hey, just because you have profit and you're not honoring God, you need to honor God. And so I think the story of Service Master will be told in the lives of leaders as they carry forth those principles to the businesses um, yeah. they need. And if I could say, uh, Patricia Ash, who uh, was a, a key part of uh, ASP, who was a key part of Service Master during this time, she said to me, you know, these were not just business principles. These are life principles. Right. And it has changed everything about my life, my family, and, and other things. And today she is a leadership training coach. And she is, says these principles are every bit a part of everything that I'm doing. Right. So, uh, so yes, I, I think that they live on. Uh, a dream is that they will again live on in Service Master, but they are indeed living on in other businesses. Yeah, well, they're living on here at Convene in all that we do. And uh, we're helping hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of businesses to take a look through the leadership content that we do, to take a look at Service Master and to understand what could they learn, what could they pick up by reading Soul of the Firm or listening to a Bill Pollard um, a talk. And for those of our listeners who are interested in hearing more from Bill himself, uh, I interviewed him for, I think it was 20 minutes. And if you just check out the link in the show description, You'll be able to see me interview Bill Pollard talking about some of those days at Service Master. So the book, hold it up again, Al, is The Service Master Story 
I'd encourage you to buy that uh, wherever you buy books on uh, Amazon or wherever by Al Arisman, former Boeing executive. And I'm very excited that you uh, took time to be with us today from your office in Seattle. And I wish you God's best. Thank you so much, Greg. It was an honor to be with you and an honor to do this book. Thanks, Al. God bless.